we've been talking about breakthroughs um, all this month, and uh, we've many of us have been fasting. We're in the we're kind of on day I guess fourteen of twenty one days of of prayer and fasting to begin the year and praying for God to help us breakthrough, breakthrough physically, breakthrough financially, break, break breakthrough in our family, in our relationships, in our jobs, career, education, um, and all those things are extremely important. But today I want to talk to you about spiritual breakthroughs, breaking through to what God has next for me and my relationship with him. And the, the passage of the Bible that we're going to talk about this morning, we'll talk about a couple, um, but I really want to focus in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 23 through 30. This will be the last week that we talk about breakthroughs as a teaching series. We're starting a new series next week called Family Life, candidly and courageously confronting the elephants in your family. And I know some of you are already naming names. You know, I know who the elephant is in my family. It may be just you. You don't know. You might be. <laughs> but uh, whether you are single or married or divorced and remarried or you know, whatever your family structure is, we all have a family. And uh, the Bible has a lot to say about our families. And so we're going to be talking about a number of different things next month. It's going to be interesting. And we're going to talk about some things you probably don't expect to hear from, uh, or at least a pastor talk about in church. But, you know, we need to talk about these things because these are very real things in our lives. And so the Bible has a lot to say about those things. We'll look a lot into the life of King David. He had a lot of elephants in his family that he didn't deal with, and they dealt with him eventually. So we're going to talk about those things, see what the Bible has to say, and give you some strategies to smash those elephants in your family. Again, not people, but elephants. So <laughs> Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 23 through 30. It's a little bit about um, probably the character, and then I call him a character. He's not a character. He was a real human being that lived and walked the earth. This is not a movie. This is real stuff. This is history. John the Baptist uh, is probably somebody I've studied about more than anybody else in the last seven or eight years. I'm just fascinated by his life and the little bit that we know about him and who he was. This is the passage that I still don't have my hands around. It puzzles me. I'm skeptical of him being genuine in this passage. I don't think, I don't know if I've met another human being that would say the things that he says in this chapter that I would believe that they were being honest. I think they'd be being politically correct or just saying the right thing. But I just want you to capture this story. I'm going to draw out a few points from it, and then we're going to spend some time in worship and prayer together. Here's what it says. Um, at this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. Good place to have a baptism. A place with plenty of water. And people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River the one you identified as the Messiah, he's also baptizing people and everybody's going to him instead of coming to you. Here's what John says. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I'm not the man. <laughs> I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to set him up for success, to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride. The best man is just simply glad to stand with him and hear the vows. This next statement, therefore I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. So here we read a part of the story of John the Baptist. Here's, for those of you who, who are hearing this story for the first time, and I recognize in the room it's kind of an, an equal mix. Some of you have heard this story hundreds of times. And there's others of us that have never heard any of this. And this is just all brand new. 
This is one of the accounts of Jesus's life written by the Apostle John, a guy who was there step by step with Jesus the whole way through is a first hand account. And he's writing down some of these things for us. And he includes this story about John the Baptist, who is actually, you know, relative of Jesus. He was a, if, if you know a little bit about his life, he was born to parents who were very, very old, who most theologians believe died when he was young, and he wasn't raised by his parents. He was raised with kind of this radical group of people, and he was just weird from the beginning. He was not somebody who was probably the most popular kid. He was strange. He was a little odd. He was a little out there. He dressed funny. He ate a really, I mean, he was known, his reputation was for what he wore and what he ate because it was so weird. This is not a guy who probably grew up with a crowd of people around him, but he loved God with all of his heart. And he did not care what people thought about how he ate or how he dressed. He was sold out to God's purpose. And he knew from a young age that God called him to be a prophet. And his specific goal was to prepare the way to prepare people's hearts to receive Jesus as the Messiah when Jesus came along. He knew that God's goal for him wasn't ever to be the man. To have the crowd follow him. He knew that for a time. He'd kind of be a surrogate. He would have the crowd for a while. But eventually the crowd that used to follow him around. And listen to his teaching. And come to him for baptism. and come Would eventually leave him. And go follow somebody else. He knew that. And in this passage, we find that even this strange guy that probably for a while lived as very much of an outcast, God gave him a powerful ministry, a powerful career as a prophet. And people, he actually had to change venues. There wasn't enough water for him to baptize wherever he was, so he had to change venues because so many people were coming to this outcast now. And you can think of it, all of us are human enough to understand that when you start having success and people start coming to you and your business starts to grow and your circle of influence starts to grow, it feels good. It feels fulfilling. It feels right. And then when all these people start, start coming, coming to John, it says he had to go to a place where there was more water to baptize because so many people were coming. And then what started happening was then Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus came on the scene. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he trumps John the Baptist. And all the people who were coming to John's, let's lose a loose train, all the people that were coming to John's church are going to Jesus' church. And he starts walk, seeing people walk out the door and go follow another preacher, so to speak. I don't know many of my colleagues that could handle that real well. If 100 people left their congregation day, walked out the back door and went to the church two miles down the road and started going there and say, this is what we want. I don't know many people. That would be, I'm just thrilled for their success. That would be the right thing to say, but probably not. That would be probably pretty disingenuous. But you know what John actually says? His guys, his team, his staff come to John and say, John, there's a problem. You know that guy you introduced us to the other day and said, that's the Messiah? Everybody's leaving us and going to him. This is a problem. This is our bread and butter. This is how we do what we do. This is not a good thing, John. You got to look at the numbers, man. The numbers are declining. We're we're getting less and less, and he's getting more and more. What are we going to do? And he just, I can just, you, you see what he says now? Look at it again. He says, I told you nothing about this came from me. It all came from God. I got nothing if it wasn't for him. So these were my people to begin with. They were always his. First thing he says. He understands what he did and what he didn't do and who he was and who he wasn't. And if you get nothing else, understand one of the greatest deposits God can ever make in your life is help you be comfortable with who you are and who you're not and be okay with it. He knew that. He says to them, I was never supposed to be the Messiah and that's okay. He says, my goal in life is not to be the man. God didn't call me to be the man, the Messiah. 
I knew and I know and I'm okay with the fact that I'm just the best man at the wedding and I'm thrilled to be standing up front and have the best seat to watch the bride and the groom get married. He was okay with that. And then he says something that I just have a hard time hearing any male in his situation say. He says, as a matter of fact, not only am I okay that people are leaving and my ministry is declining, and quite frankly, he was about to get thrown in prison and beheaded. His season, his window was coming to a close. He He says, not only am I okay with that, I am filled with joy at Jesus' success. And I read that and I say, how can he be so nice? How can he be so humble? How can anybody say that and really, really mean? How can I get to a place in my relationship with God that whether I am thriving or whether it looks like I'm declining, whether I'm in the middle of my career or I think it's at the end, whether I understand what's going on, whether I'm increase or decline, how do I still keep breaking through to the next place God has for me spiritually? And he gives us the secret, thank God. John gives us the secret. He lets us know what it was for him that got him there. I just want to suggest to you something. John didn't come out of the womb having arrived at this place in his maturity. We don't have the whole story, but I promise you that this, he didn't get to this place overnight. It was breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough in his life that got him to this place that you and I can get to. Here's what he says. He says, you know why I'm so filled with the joy? You know why I can say that? Because here's what a spiritual break. He gives us one sentence, one sentence in the whole Bible that I can tell you will guarantee through all of history that this is the sentence that guarantees your next spiritual breakthrough. I don't like to make guarantees. I don't like to tease things or overhype things. But I believe that this sentence has never failed in bringing someone to their next spiritual breakthrough. He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. You want to get to your next spiritual breakthrough, whether it's you moving from glory to glory, a high place to another higher place, or you moving from a place of being dry and barren to a place where you're growing spiritually, there is no way around him becoming greater and greater and me becoming less and less. So in your notes, the big idea, the one thing I want to leave you with this morning is that a spiritual breakthrough occurs every time I make room for more of God in my life. Because you and I could spend the next eight weeks defining what a spiritual breakthrough looks like, trying to give you a definition. It, it means something different to all. It might manifest in a different way. It might become tangible to you. You might need to just feel some connection to God at all. That might be your spiritual breakthrough. For somebody else, it might be something more tangible. Your next spiritual breakthrough is you reading your Bible more regularly. For someone else, your next spiritual breakthrough, I mean, who knows? But I will tell you this. You know what it means for all of us is that you have, we, a spiritual breakthrough occurs. What really happens is that you've made more room for God in your life and he rushes in and occupies the vacuum. That's what happens. That's what John said. He has to become greater and greater, which is, I don't have time, time to unpack that whole thought, but I'll leave you with maybe the distilled nugget of that statement. God can't become greater. He is as great as he will ever be. So it doesn't mean that I'm asking God to change and be magnified. It's my view and understanding of him has to become greater and greater. And there is, what, always more of God for me to understand and to know. And when it says I must become less and less, it doesn't mean that I become this self-loathing, depressed. No, 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 no. It just means there's parts of me that are incompatible with more of God in my life. And those things must become less and less. So I'll, I'll give you a definition, not the definition of a spiritual breakthrough, but just a working definition for us this morning. 
So how do I know if I'm having one or if I need one or what it looks like? What's my assessment to a spiritual breakthrough is any time I become one incremental step less, one more step less like I used to be and one more step like Jesus. That's a spiritual breakthrough. Now, when you're starting to think about that, you're like, okay, well, maybe my spiritual breakthrough doesn't mean I go from just being depressed all the time to doing cartwheels during worship on Sunday morning. First of all, you do cartwheels during worship on Sunday morning. I might have to ask you to slow that down a little bit. <laughs> Which is a whole other teaching on worship. Because worship's all about directing God. Here's all I have to say about that this week. We'll talk about this in March. But just because I opened up that can of worms, to save you a few emails, let me just define that. Worship, to me, has room for plenty of expression as long as you're not taking away attention from God and putting it on you. Okay? Okay, we'll talk about that later. But save your emails for March, and then you can just wear me out with those ones. But it's any time I become less who I used to be and more like Jesus. So how do I get at that, Pastor? I just want to offer you a few things very briefly this morning. And all these things could be unpacked into bigger things, but sometimes less is more. And I want to let you chew on some of this next week, throughout the week. Number one, how do I get at that, Pastor? Number one, um, let me offer you a few things that will get you started. Maybe the reason you and I aren't breaking through is because there's no more room for Jesus in our life. Pastor, I feel stuck spiritually. Why am I not breaking through? Well, I will tell you why. It's because there's no room for Jesus. No more room than what you've already given him. Because as we'll see in a second, anytime you give him room and say, Jesus, this space is yours, he rushes in 100% all the time or he's a liar. And God's not a liar. The reason that he can't become more and more is because you haven't become like, there's no room for Jesus. I want you to understand something. Um, Jesus is still willing to come and make his home inside of anyone who will make room for him. Let me give you a scripture text to tell you that. How did Jesus come into the world and what was the problem? Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Mary gave birth to her firstborn child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them, says the NLT and the NIV. It says because there was no room for Jesus. And you understand how horrific this is to understand. When my wife was pregnant, no one ever treated her better in her life than when she was pregnant. I mean, I lived in the South. We lived in Atlanta and Georgia in the time that my wife was pregnant. And the South is still pretty much known for chivalry and Southern gentlemen. And look, you want to you get in trouble real fast in the South, let a lady walk up to a door without holding it. Which is not a bad idea to do anywhere and everywhere, which is why we have somebody every Sunday opening the door for you because we just think it's a nice thing to do. But even women will hold doors for other women if they see a pregnant woman coming. If, a, if a, you know, in the South, if you were sitting in a seat as a gentleman and there weren't any more seats and a woman came in the room, you got up out of your seat and you offered your seat to the lady. I don't think this would just be a Southern thing. This is a great thing to do everywhere, but it was especially pronounced in the South. But you see a woman sit in a seat and she sees a pregnant woman get in, she will beat a man out of her seat and say, I understand, honey, you come sit down. So how is it that a pregnant woman can't find a room in Jerusalem? You understand what that says? There was no room for Jesus when he came into the world. No one made, you want to tell me there were, no, there were no kings in Jerusalem that had space in their palace for a pregnant woman? The government leaders back then had no space for Jesus, and they don't today either, for the most part. You mean to tell me there were no good, God-fearing Jews in Jerusalem that had space in their house for a pregnant woman? Even the people who were very religious and knew Jesus didn't have room for, didn't have room for him then. And I wonder if even among the good Christians of today, we make space for all kinds of things, don't we? We talk about all kinds. When's the last time you had a conversation about God and how good he's been to you with any other Christian? You start talking with another Christian about God, sometimes they'll look at you like you're crazy. It's taboo to talk about Jesus among Christians. It shouldn't be. We make room for all kinds of things. 
If you talk about your pastor more than you talk about Jesus. Come on. It's about Jesus. I wonder if there's any more room for him. You know, there was no room in public opinion for Jesus back then. But is there? Jesus is still willing to come and spend time and move into anybody who will make more room for him. And perhaps the reason you're not breaking through the way you want to is because you've made no more room for Jesus in your life than he currently has. Second thing I might suggest to you this morning, if you're stuck and you want to get your next breakthrough, is this statement. Filled people are not hungry people. If you find no drive for your spiritual breakthrough, it might be because you're already full. Let me read that to you again. Point number two in your notes. Filled people are not hungry people. If you find no drive for your spiritual breakthrough, it's because you're already full. Would you agree with me that hunger is a powerful motivator? People do crazy things when they're hungry, man. I will not tell any stories about my marriage and hunger and how it affects mood and conversations. All I know is that about one week into marriage, I learned not to ask my wife anytime she was sharp with me about something. Babe, are you hungry by any chance? Not the right time to suggest that maybe she's hungry. The ironic thing is that after, you know, 15 years of being married, I'm now the one who, when I'm hungry, you can definitely tell. And she covers it much better. She'll be like, you need to get a snack and then come back and talk to me. (laughs) Hunger is a powerful motivating force. Perhaps you could make a case that it may be the most powerful motivator, maybe besides thirst, that there is. (laughs) And I can't unpack all of this, but I'll just suggest to you God created us with hunger impulses to help us survive. He created your body with the intrinsic ability to notify you when it needs something it doesn't have to motivate you to get it. Now, seven years ago, I started a study I haven't finished trying to do a connection between it started on on the nutrition study, trying to make a connection between hunger cravings and how we're meeting those cravings. And can you be more? Can you learn to diagnose those cravings more specifically to feed your body, body properly? For instance, is the impulse that sends me when I'm low on protein different than the impulse that sends me when I'm low on vitamin C? And can I recognize the difference? Because the theory is many of us overeat because we're hungry, and maybe it's our body telling us I need A, B, and C, and we shove it full of D, E, and F till we're full, and then an hour later we're hungry again. And But I took it a step further and said, well, if God designed this, is there anything spiritually related here? Does he design us to have hunger cravings spiritually that we can detect and we can discern and we can feed ourselves? Because the way that the, the, way that the study started going was that there are some differences in the way that God made our body and our spirits. Because, you know, your body is designed in such a way that when it gets hungry, it can be filled and satisfied, at least for a time period. But the way that he designs us spiritually to operate is that the closer we get to God, the deeper those hunger pangs continue. So that they're never fully satiated, but they drive us deeper. This is why David, the psalmist, wrote things like, as the deer pants when he is so incredibly thirsty, when the thirst in the deer overtakes the deer to the point where it pants audibly. That's the way my soul currently longs for you. And this is a man who's writing the Bible as he says it. He was a man who probably walked closer to God at that point in life than most of us will ever walk. And he says, I'm still at the point where the closer I get to you, the more I pant for you. But I want to tell you something. Filled people aren't hungry people. Hunger is a great motivator, and you need spiritual hunger to get to your next breakthrough. 
And many of us just say, you know, Pastor, I know I need to grow spiritually. I just don't have any motivation to do so. Well, one of the reasons probably because you're already full with something else. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. There's a blessing for those of us who can clear enough space in our spiritual bellies. Because what happens is kind of like when you go to the buffet, which is the place that Kendra and I will be on February the 16th. We'll be going to the buffet. I love the buffet. And when you're really hungry, a buffet is a dangerous place to go, especially the first plate. Because the first plate always looks different than the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. The first plate, it's like everything looks good. When you're hungry at a buffet, you're putting stuff on that plate that have no business being on the plate together. You're like, all right, that bread looks good. Those potatoes look good. Nacho cheese sauce. Why is it that every buffet has a big bowl of nacho cheese sauce? I don't know why. And you're putting all kinds, because you're so hungry. You're piling that thing up, and you don't care. And you're, you're not even tasting the food when you sit down. You're inhaling. But what I've noticed is that when you go back the second time, you're a little more selective because you're not quite as hungry. And so now it's like, oh, that looked good the first trip. But this, eh. But this, I want more of that and a little of this. And then if you go back a third time, it's even more selective. What happens is the fuller you get, the more full you become, the more selective you are about what you're eating to the point where nothing looks good when you're really, really full. And many of us have gotten that way in our spiritual walk. We're so filled with stuff, we've become connoisseurs of worship and connoisseurs of church. And that message didn't really do anything for me today because I'm already full and that didn't hit the little niche that I wanted. And, and I don't, you know, why don't we sing more of this song or that song? And I wish, you know, we did. Look, that's what happens. You're so full. There's hungry people sitting out there. They don't even know what they're hungry for. And they come and they sit in church service and they say, I don't even remember what you preach about, but I know I was filled when I got there. I know that what I was hungry for. And sometimes we've got to stop being so snobby and filled with all this other junk that we've just pounded into our life. If you're not breaking through spiritually, it's because you're too full. You are full of yourself. Paul said there's people who, Paul rebuked some people in the New Testament. He said, you know, their problem, their God is their belly. If you want to break through to the next level, friend, you've got to come to church and come to God and come to him every day with an, with an empty plate. You know, some, here's the deal. If I put a plate out in front of you today, most of us would say, well, God gets this part of the plate and I, I get that part of the plate. Just turn the whole thing over. He is the plate. He's everything. He's all of it. He doesn't get a portion of our life. Filled people aren't hungry people. You want to break through spiritually and you're not, it might be because you're already full. Well, how can you say that, Pastor? Well, here's the proof. That next bullet underneath there, here's a statement. I have exactly, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. I have exactly as much of God's presence in my life as I want. No more, no less. You have exactly as much of God's presence in your life as you want. Don't necessarily take that as rebuke. Take that as an invitation. I want more, you can have it. Why? Because here's the promise God makes. James chapter 4, verse 8. Come close to God and he'll come close to you. Come close to God, and he might come close to you if you... No. This is not one of those if-then verses. Come close to God, and what will happen, not might. And God will come close to you. That means if you want to take an incremental step, watch this. That's why I say, you take an incremental step closer to God, and you know what? He comes close to you. If I become less and less, guess what? He's going to become greater and greater. Because you have exactly one bucket. You have 100% of you. This is you. There's always more in me, but it's filled to the top with something. It's some type of mixture between you and God and everything else. And the only way you can get more of God in here is by offloading a little bit and finding more of God into your life. But this is the most incredible invitation. But the question I have to ask you, who moves first? Who moves first? God? Nope. We do. I've been sitting and waiting for my breakthrough. Stop sitting and waiting and go get it. 
move. Oh, I don't know how to start. Just start. I don't know. Just start. Well, you know, I don't have a huge, long Bible reading plan. I know. Just start something. I, I, you know, I, I need more learning about prayer. We'll help you with just start. Just start. I don't understand much about worship. That's okay. I don't know if I do either. But just start. Just start. Take a step and God will meet you. And then take another step. And one more step. And then one more step. And one more step. You have exactly as much of God as you want. I don't want to ever stop wanting more. That's dangerous. That's, that's where, you know, the food analogies run out. Because at some point, no matter how good you think, you know, right now if we're on this fast. It's like I like hummus a lot right now. But at some point, I just don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> that's not how it is with God. And if that's how it's become with God, you do not know him like you think you do. Most of the people that I know that reject God have never had an accurate presentation. They're rejecting an inaccurate presentation of God. And it usually came through one of us. It's very hard to resist God as he really is. That's another whole topic. Number three, last point. There is exactly one way to clear more space for God, says John the Baptist. Let's bring it full circle. I must become less and less so Jesus can become greater and greater. And we could really go deep psychologically on this. And I like to do that from time to time. I really do. It interests me. And there's a time and place and right form to talk about that. I'd rather let you try and chew on that a little bit for yourself and ask, you know, God, what does that mean to me? What does it mean for me to be less and less so that you can become greater and greater? And again, I'm not suggesting to you that somehow God is still evolving and changing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He, he needs no improvement. That's why God, you know, people, well, what, if, what is this thing about God changing? Well, well, for God to need to, God doesn't need to change. For him to change would mean he'd either have to improve or regress. That's the only changing he could do. And there's nothing to improve. He's already as good as he ever can possibly be. And he's not ever going to regress. So it's not about, you know, that somehow God has got to get bigger and I just watch. I have to become less and less. Well, what does that look like in practical terms? Well, three things I'll give you just briefly. First, if I, it might mean I need to have a heart change. Something in my heart. And when we say heart, I'm not talking about the physical thing that pumps stuff everywhere. That's really great medical definition. I apologize to all the doctors and nurses and others. The thing in there that pumps stuff, and you, yeah, that's great. That I didn't go to medical school, so flopped on that one. But we're not talking about the physical thing inside of you. When we talk about heart, we talk about what the Bible says. It actually kind of, actually the Greek word for that in most places in the New Testament is psyche, which you might have heard, which is that part of me that you can't see. My thoughts, my feelings, my attitudes, the center of me, that that fountain that drives me that you can't see, you just see the evidence of it in the way that I live. That has to change if I'm going to be less and less because not everything in that part of me is healthy. Not everything in that part of me is sinful either. Some of it's just based out of what I want and what I think and what I feel and what I believe. And if God's going to become greater and greater, something about what I believe or feel towards God has to change a bit from what it does right now. Some things about me have to change. I would also suggest this. Let me, let me put this on the flip side. Um, some of the things, maybe your spiritual breakthrough has less about you th thinking something different about God, but maybe thinking better about you. Maybe you're not breaking through because you, th you and God do not agree on who you are and how you should be thinking about you. You have a much lower view of yourself than God does. 
you see yourself as a failure, as, as a collection of your mistakes. You see yourself as riddled with problems and issues and medications and prescriptions and ailments and struggles. God doesn't see you as the collection of those things. And maybe your next spiritual breakthrough has to do with you seeing yourself the way God does and simultaneously you understand him differently and you think differently about yourself. It's not wrong for you to be able to look at yourself and say, I love who I am. And I love, it's not being arrogant, it's being healthy. What, who are you to disagree with your creator about who you are? Who are you to go to the one who made you and say, you are the, the one who made you says, this is the apple of my eye and this is my most priceless creation and this is the one that I wanted my son to die for. And you say, no, I'd like to disagree with you. This is trash, this is garbage, this is failure, this is unwanted. You need to stop that. Have a heart change. That's not who you are. And you won't get where you want to go spiritually until you also are okay with who you are. Second, but what I have to have a head change. I've been trying to have a hair change for a while, and that's another thing that starts with H, but it doesn't fit in there. So <laughs> I talked about this last week, so I'll, you know, I'll refer you back to that in the interest of time. But not only do we have to kind of have changes, you know, sometimes me being less and God being more involves what I believe, what I think, what I feel, or what, what I feel. Sometimes we just have to change what we think, how we talk to ourselves, how we talk to God. Our thoughts towards God, towards others, towards me have to change. I talked a lot about that last week and go online and, and, and catch up on that. The third bullet is, and this is not my statement. This is just one that really stuck with my mind, something I saw recently. I must be second. He must be first. I don't have to be 35th because that's not what the Bible teaches either. The Bible teaches we do need to take care of ourselves. We need to take care of our marriages, take care of our kids, take care of our career. But those things can't come in front of who God is. And if you want to break through spiritually and get to the next season that God has for you spiritually, it can't happen if you continue to put yourself or anything else in front of who God is in your life. Because anything you put in front of God, the Bible has a four-letter word that begins with I to describe that. It is called an idol. Anything that you, not only that you put in front of God, but I can make that more practical. Anything that you look to to fulfill for you and to fulfill in you things that only God wants to fulfill becomes an idol. That job he gave you might not need to be sacrificed on an altar to kill it as an idol, but that job that you're looking to to be your source, your strength, your identity, your comfort, you have now elevated a good thing he gave you and perverted it into an idol. You can take even good things. We talked months ago about what Abraham learned when possibly he had even made his own son an idol and God was testing that. Did Abraham love his son more than he loved God? I mean, it's easy and pleasant to talk about jobs and other things, TV and music. You start talking about family, it gets messy fast. But even good things can become idols, not because God makes it that way, but because we give them unhealthy priority in our life. It might not mean you killing something off today. It might mean you just reprioritizing and putting something more appropriately within the boundary context that God needs it in your life in order that he can truly be first and that we come second. I'm amazed by what John the Baptist says. I just want you to understand there's always more of God for you to experience. And in my own life, I can look back over season of breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough in my life. 
Every one of them involves some element of worship in my life. Every element involved in some form of, of me praying and thinking and seeking and asking God to help me move forward in my life. And it, and it was always bathed in those contexts. And, and I want us to spend the last few moments of our time together as a congregation this morning. It's a very full house. This is awesome. We literally we have every chair the high school has in this room and that room. And this is great. They're, all, they're very close to all being full. This is awesome. I love it. But I have to just confess to you that I don't want a room with filled chairs and empty hearts. And what are we doing? Someone said to me a few weeks ago, you know, that, that they and someone said to me again this morning, they appreciate that every week we talk about Jesus, we give people an opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus. And I said, well, if we're not, we're money laundering. Think about it. We take up offerings and collections and we give of our time and everything. What are we doing if it's not about? That's what it's all about. We don't want to just fill a, a cafeteria and an auditorium and a big building with people to say, and it's not about that. He has to become greater and greater. And we have to become less and less. What I want for me and what I want for you is a spiritual breakthrough. I want a spiritual breakthrough for me, not because I'm in a dry desert spiritually. I'm not right now, to be quite frank with you. I'm in a place where I feel like I know God better today than I have in any other season of my life, and I'm just not satisfied. It's like the more that I get to know this God, it's the more I crave to have more of his presence in my life, and I don't ever want to be separated from it. Look at the people in the Bible who felt that way. Moses was on a spiritual high, and he said, I don't ever want to be separated from God. David said the same thing. I want to be in the temple 24-7, just in God's presence. The people who knew him best seemed to just have their whole world turned upside down. Paul, in his 50 says, you know what I want more than anything else? I want to know Jesus better. The more you get to know him, the more you'll want to keep getting to know him. But it has to start somewhere. You have to make a step. If you'll draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. And I want to just give us an opportunity to spend some time doing that together this morning before we go individually and get after this. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me today as our worship team comes? First step in any spiritual breakthrough for anybody where we, where we all have to begin when it comes to God. You can't skip this step. And the step is that you must make a decision about what you're going to do with Jesus. It's the most critical question Jesus ever asked anybody in the whole New Testament is when he turned to Peter and said, what about you? Who do you think I am? And that's the question I want to ask you this morning. Who do you think Jesus is and what are you going to do about that? If you think and you have, are coming to believe in this moment. That he's your savior, that he's your Lord, that he is the one that a relationship with him is what will change your life from what it's been to what he wants it to be. Then you're right where you need to be in this thought process this morning. You don't have to change a thing about you in this moment. Other than the Bible says, Paul says, if you believe in Jesus, you want to begin a relationship, you have to confess with your mouth. You have to, you, you must do this yourself. No one can do it for you. You just confess, you admit, you declare with your mouth, with your voice, with your thoughts, with everything within you, that Jesus is in fact your Lord. He's in charge. He gets, this, he gets the driver's seat, the steering wheel. You exchange roles. And you must believe in your heart, in your psyche, in your thoughts, your will, in that part that's deep down inside of you that determines what you believe. That You have to believe with every fiber of your being 
that God raised him from the dead and that he's living. It says, then you'll be saved. Then you'll be changed. Then you'll be transformed. And if you're here this morning and you want to begin, you feel far away from God and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, this is the best spiritual breakthrough that could ever happen. And all you have to do is say something just like this. You can say it right now in your seat. You can say it with your mouth. You can say it in your thoughts with your heart to God. But you have to do this. You have to make it tangible. You say, Jesus, I recognize that I am not in right relationship with you and I want that to change right now. So I ask you to forgive me of all of my past sins, all of my past mistakes. Just, I want you to wipe them off the record. I have no right to ask it, but you invite me to do it, so I do that. And I invite you into my life and I declare you are my Lord, you are my Savior. You're the one who's in charge and the one who saves me from who I was. You saved me from death. You saved me from being eternally separated from you. And now I just receive you into my life and all that you have to offer me. I want to accept your invitation to be your son, to be your daughter, to be your child. And I make a commitment to you right now that I'm not going to walk away from. And that commitment is to follow you all the days of my life through breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. Now for the rest of those of you in the house that have made that decision or those that are just still thinking about it, I want to ask you something. Is there even a small hunger pang for you for Jesus that's still there? Is there any space left for Jesus in your heart? Is there any? Do you wistfully remember a time you were closer to God than you are today and why are you okay with that? Will you make more room for Jesus today? Will you carve out some space for him? Will you accept his invitation to come near to him and then be blown away when he meets you right there and he draws near to you in return? I want to invite you all over this house to stand with me this morning. We have some time. Stand with me if you would, please. Our prayer team, our leadership, any of those of you that are in one of those functions, our elders, you know, Stuart, uh, Brian, our prayer team, if you'd come forward. and we have, we have some anointing oil up and around here if you just want to grab one of those. I've asked lots of people from our team, Rajiv and others, if they would just come and make themselves available. Because I believe there are dozens and dozens and dozens of us this morning that need to take a step today and say, I'm not only going to decide in my heart to go after a breakthrough, I'm going to tell another human being and just say, you know what, I, I need more Jesus in my life. And I just want to make that commitment with another human being and say, I want to get after this. And will you pray over me that this becomes a time and a season of me knowing God better than I ever have before. And we want to pray over you. We'll anoint you with oil. The New Testament says if you have a need, you can call for the elders of the church. They'll anoint you with just a little bit of oil. We'll pray for you. That's just praying that the, the covering of the Holy Spirit comes over your life. And that God purifies everything that happens in this whole process and seals it with you. You don't have to be scared of us. We're not going to go tell these stories around. We're just here to stand with you, to pray with you. I've asked our team to lead us. And let's just for the next 10, 12, 15 minutes, let's turn this room into a concert of worship, of prayer, of inviting Jesus to have more space in our heart and just watch what he does.